good to see each of you. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans there in your New Testament. And uh, we're going to be looking today at our second sermon of this letter. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 15 today. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to guide us in his word this morning. Lord, we look to you now and ask for your strength in seeing, for your power in hearing, and for your enabling to change because of Christ and for your glory in his name. Amen. If I were to ask you what the most important mark of a Christian is, what would you say? What is the most important mark of a believer, follower of Jesus? Faithfulness, compassionate, trustworthy, dependable, I mean, what, what comes to your mind when you think most important mark? I have to pick one. What am I going to pick? Well, I think the Bible leaves no doubt what that mark is. And it is love. John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment. He says, you're to love God. It's the most important thing. But the second is like it, that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. The great preacher Spurgeon said, I do not know of anything which more commends a Christian to his fellow Christians than a true spirit of love. Love for other Believers demonstrates the power of the gospel. It's one thing to know that, but altogether different to actually live that. Not only does the Bible make that clear that love is, let's say, not just a distinguishing mark, but the distinguishing mark of a believer. Not only does the Bible command that, make that clear, but it also shows us that. It gives us examples of what Christian love looks like. And I can't think of any better example of someone who modeled gospel-fueled Christian love than the Apostle Paul. A man who once hated Christians He persecuted them, giving permission to kill them. Now converted, changed, transformed by the power of the gospel, and he is pouring himself out in love of others. As Paul opens his letter to the Romans, we get a snapshot of that. These verses that we'll look at this morning begin just to peel back a bit Paul's heart and show us not just the heart of an apostle or 
of pastor kind of figure, but a heart of a Christian who genuinely cared for other Christians. And I think it would do us well today to just stop and consider that, to pause for a moment and see as Paul expresses himself in this opening letter to, opening part of the letter to the Roman believers, as he exposes his heart, he shows how the gospel has created this affection for other Christians. I think it does us well to stop and consider that in Paul's life and then to stop obviously and see what is true in our own hearts. Romans 1, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Remember, Paul has never been to Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world's. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The main principle that comes from this passage that we could say today is this. The gospel shapes our attitude and leads us to have a growing affection for other Christians. Your attitude towards another Christian, your love for another Christian is shaped by and fueled by the gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we consider Paul's attitude, as we look at Paul's affection for the church at Rome, may by God's grace this morning, it calls us to pause and consider our own attitudes and our own love and our own commitment towards other believers. Here we're gonna look at four important marks of Christian love as demonstrated by Paul and his care for the Roman church. Four important marks of Christian love. Let's see them together from the text, not just pulling these out of the air. It's right here in the text. Number one. We see that love is marked by thanksgiving. Look at verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith being proclaimed in all the world. Paul continues with this personal word to the Roman believers and he begins to give some of the reasons why he desires to visit them but even before he gets to there, he just says he's thankful He's thankful for them. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 
Paul's gratitude was obviously focused here on the testimony or the fruitfulness, the, the, the apparent faithfulness of these Roman Christians. Their faith was well known. They had a reputation and it was a good one. And he's thankful to God for that. He's, he's, he's expressing gratitude. I want you to notice a few things about his thankfulness here. First of all, he is, we need to consider the object of his thanksgiving. Notice the text, what it says and what it doesn't say. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. That's what the text says. He doesn't say, I'm so thankful for you and your faith. He doesn't say that. There's a difference. The object of his thanksgiving is not the Roman Christians. It is God. That is who the Lord, that is who Paul is, is, is being thankful to, towards the object. When we're thankful for something, there is an object of thanksgiving. That's why, you know, if you're a true atheist, you need to skip thanksgiving. Who are you thankful for? There are two. I mean, we're, we're, thanksgiving has to be directed to someone right? Paul is thankful, and the object of his thankfulness is God. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now, it might seem strange, but what Paul is doing is he is thanking God for the faith of the Roman Christians. It may seem a little odd if you, if you just pause and think about it for a minute. Paul is thanking God for the Roman Christians' faith. How's that? What he is doing, he'll do later on in the, in the letter, he's giving God credit, even for their faith. You know, many times, people, well-meaning, will say things well, regarding salvation, well, God does his part and we do our part. And that may sound good, but it's really a stretch of what the Bible actually teaches. In fact, if you go back to verses six and seven, we we see a very quick but important reference to this work of God. He says in verse six, he's writing to the Romans, he says, including you who were called to belong to Jesus. Verse seven, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Paul understood that the believers, whether in Rome or Ephesus or wherever, any Christian for that matter, all believers are objects of God's love and calling. They didn't call themselves, they didn't love themselves into the faith, they didn't just will up enough will in their hearts to believe in the gospel. This was God's sovereign work. Paul understood that. He understood what is true of any believer that God is the primary actor in salvation. And while yes, it is true that we respond in repentance and faith, you will not be saved if you do not believe in Christ. You will not be saved if you do not turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. You must or else you will not be saved. But even that faith to turn to Christ is a gift of God. And that is exactly what Paul is acknowledging here. I thank my God for your faith. You would have never had it, had it not been for him. 
God is the one who enables us to even believe. Therefore, God is the one to whom we must give thanks for our faith. He is the object of our thanksgiving. But notice the reason he gives. He says, I thank God, he's the object, I'm giving him thanks through Christ Jesus or through Jesus Christ for all of you because, here's the reason, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. God's work of grace was bearing fruit in Rome. The gospel was producing fruits. There was faithfulness happening among the believers in Rome. So much so that all the world knew about their faith. We get caught up with the word world sometimes and, and you say, wow, even people in the United States, which hadn't been founded yet, or, or uh, you know, even in, in Antarctica, you know, all the world. Oftentimes when you hear references to the world like this, it depends on the context many times, but many times they would even use the word world just to refer to the Mediterranean area. As far as the gospel had reached, as far as people were hearing evidence, in a lot of places around, the testimony of these Roman Christians was being heard and known. You see, this church was right in the middle of Greek culture, a culture not known for its friendliness towards Christ and monotheism, the worship of one God. And yet these believers right in this center of Roman culture and Greek culture and all these other things that were known in that part of the world in that day and time, here was a group of faithful, fruitful Christians. They were known. They had a reputation. And it was a good one, it seems. And so it just even cause us to think for a minute what about our reputation? You know, one of my desires as a pastor is, is that this could be said of us. Not for our glory, but for God's glory. That others would be able to say, you know, I thank God for redeeming grace, Baptist Church. I thank my God for you because your faith is well known. Several things that I do think that it helps us reflect on when we think about Paul's deep appreciation here for the testimony of these believers. Friends, are we quick to recognize that other Christians are in fact the work of God? Do we take the time to express prayerfully to God, gratitude for other Christians. Just think about how you pray. I mean, we, hopefully you pray, and you pray for other Christians. But as you pray for other Christians, is that prayer often marked by a sense of gratefulness to God for them? Paul, he knew some of these people by a distance, but as a whole, Paul didn't even know many of these Christians but notice what he says, I thank my God for all of you.
He didn't even know many of them, most of them, and yet he expresses thanks for them. If Paul was able to do that from a distance, how much more so ought we be able to do that in close proximity? And note what he's excited about. He's excited about the the fruitfulness of the gospel. He says, their faith, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. The fact that many were believing the gospel, the fact that the gospel was bringing about a work of change in people's lives. Even even as you think about other believers, friends, are, are you quick to point out evidences of God's grace in people's lives? Or are you quicker to point out the lack thereof? That tends to be our our default, right? It's easy to point out need for God's grace. It's easy to see this person needs a lot of help. And it may be true, but if you'll quickly go look in the mirror, so do you, all right? So do I. One of the things that I would just, I think the gospel produces in us is just a sense of gratitude for God's work of transforming grace in people's lives. How often do you tell people that? How often do you come to people and say, you know what, I'm so thankful to God for you because of this. It's so easy. And I don't recommend a text be the primary way that you do that, but you can at least say that in a text, right? It's better than nothing. Face-to-face would be the best, obviously, but just are we regularly pointing out evidences of God's grace or do we tend to be critical? So easy to be critical. So easy to point out, this is where, if this person would just do this more, or if this person would get their act together, if this or that or that or this, instead of stopping for a minute and just being thankful for God's work of grace in this person's life and saying to them regularly or to others regularly, I'm so thankful for you and here's why. This is what Paul, this is what the gospel produced in Paul. He's just a sense of gratitude for other Christians. Love marked by gratitude, thanksgiving. Do we regularly point that out? What about, again, your own reputation? What about our own response to the gospel? Second mark of love is, Paul here demonstrates that love is marked by continual prayer. See that in verse nine. For God is my witness, he says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Without ceasing, always. That's pretty often, isn't it? Right, it's pretty frequent. Without ceasing, always. Just saying, that's it's just marking his, his prayer always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed to last succeed in coming to you. You know, it's interesting that Paul says he's asking God. One of the, one of the things that he highlights, he kind of just gives us a little quick glimpse of one of the things that he prays, and one of those things is his desire to come there. One of the things I'm asking God is that he would give me access to you, that I could come and be with you. I I long to do that. That's what I pray for. Often, without ceasing, always. And he's so concerned that they believe him. Remember, they they don't really know Paul. 
So he's introducing himself and he's, he's, he's trying to, you know, it'd be odd if somebody just sent you a letter and you didn't really know them. Maybe you knew about them, but you didn't really know them and they're saying all this affectionate stuff, right? It would seem like, whoa, wait a minute here. So Paul's just trying to clear the air. He's just trying to demonstrate to them his genuine desire to be among them and to visit with them and to have fellowship with them. So much so that he's, he's even saying, God is my witness. Now, that's not normally a good thing to, to, to just kind of flippantly, you know, call upon God's name to endorse something you're saying. That Bible warns about certain vows and oaths that we, we would do that uh, in a sense of disrespect, but that's not what Paul's doing here. He's doing it very much with a sense of, of gospel compassion. He's saying, I love you. I want to be with you. God is my witness it's just a genuine expression of his desire to be with them. Again, they don't know him. He's just trying to demonstrate his heart. He prays without ceasing. Notice something about prayer, by the way, folks. Notice what the text says. He says, always, uh, he says, uh, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. He understands the proper approach of prayer. That when you pray, you're praying, thy will be done. He understands God's role, his his sovereign place in life, but it doesn't keep him from praying, does it? He understands that it's only by God's will will I get there. He even says later, I've been prevented providentially hindered from coming to you. He understands that God has to pave the way forward, but it doesn't keep him from praying. He's not a fatalist. He doesn't say, well, it's God's will. I may get there one day and I'm not gonna pray about it. If God wants it to happen, it'll happen. No, he's praying always without ceasing. He is crying out to God, understanding that it must be by God's will that this happens. And so just understand prayer that way. Paul models it quite well. He understands that God has to work but it doesn't keep him from pleading with God. It actually encourages him because one of the means God uses to work is the prayers and pleas of his people. Friends, when you think about what the gospel produces in us regarding love and affection, it leads us to pray regularly and often for God's people. If you just wanna kind of do a self-examination of your own heart, and your, your, your capacity of affection and love for other Christians, I want you to think how often do you pray for them? I want you to primarily think about the members of this local church because this is who you've covenanted with. I'm not asking how often do you think you're prayed for. I'm asking how often do you pray for the people in this room? Just look around, these people. How often are you interceding for these brothers and sisters in Christ by name, with specifics. This is what the gospel does. It cultivates affection in heart, in our hearts for other Christians. As we are called to embrace others, love them, and we love them well when we pray for them. So many different ways that you can go about doing that. One of these days, our church directory is going to come out, I promise. Working on that, very hard. And when it comes out, you'll get the date for the new pictures to be made, right? No, it's coming. 
But friends, one of the reasons that the church directory, it's not just a, a kind of a side thing for it. It's actually a very important tool in this church because we actually encourage you to take that church directory, not only to get to know people by face and name, but to use it as a systematic tool to pray for the members of this church. Pray for one or two or three or a line or a page every day. You may say, I don't know most of these people. Well, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. You may see a picture and you may say, I'm gonna pray for this person. I have no idea what's going on in their life. I'm praying for them by name. God, you know their needs and you see them on Sunday. You walk up to them and say, I don't know you, but I'm Adam, but I prayed for you this week. And watch their mouth fall open awkwardly. Not really. What an encouragement. What an encouragement that would be to that person. And a relationship could be established perhaps. And his love for the people of God will be demonstrated in many ways, but one of the primary ways that that happens through uh, our, our, our desire for them is, is by praying regularly. Paul is praying for a people he did not know. Don't think for a moment you've got to get close to somebody before you can really begin to pray for them. That's not true. One of the ways you get close to people is by praying for them. A love marked by continual prayer Spending time together in home groups. Well, it's awkward. Yeah, it is. It's awkward. But as you persevere through that, as you seek to encourage and engage in those opportunities, whether it's a home group or other groups, as you're serving together in ministry, praying for your fellow servant, on the setup team together and you don't really know maybe the person you're rolling out carpet with, so you know what? I prayed for you this week. I hope things are well with you and your family. And that's what the gospel does. That's not natural. That's not normal. You don't walk around work. Hey, that's, you know, among non-Christians. You don't hear non-Christians talking that. This is Christian stuff. And it's normal. The reason it feels normal is because of our, it feels abnormal is because of our flesh and our tendency to fight against those things. But a love for other Christians is marked by continued prayer for them. Number three, another mark of love that we see demonstrated in this passage is a, mark, a love marked by gospel ambitions. Look at verses 11 through 13. Paul says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, how many times has Paul got to say this? <laughs> Again, I want you to know, I've tried to come there. I've tried. But for one reason or another, I've been prevented. I want to come so that there may be a harvest reaped among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. One of the main requests in Paul's prayer for the church at Rome was for the path to be paved for him to go there. But why? Why did he want to go? Did Paul just want another notch in his little pharisaical belt? Got Rome? No. Not at all. We, we see, explained in this text, especially in these verses, a lot of the reasons why he wanted to go there. And if we had to sum it up, we could say that Paul's chief desire to go to Rome was so that he could see the Christians in Rome established, strengthened, 
encouraged. Continue to be faithful and fruitful. He says in verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Verse 13, in order that I may reap some harvest among you. And then in verse 14, he kind of summarizes by saying, so I'm eager to come to you and preach the gospel to you. It's under obligation. It's verse 15, he says. These are the reasons that he's wanting to come, but it's, it's, it could be summarized by saying, I want to see you grow in the gospel. I have gospel ambitions for you. My desire for you is fueled and informed by the good news of Jesus Christ. We can break this down into really a couple of observations. This growth that he desires prioritized mutual edification. In verse 11, he says that he may come and impart some spiritual gift. Now, Paul may have a particular gift in mind or he may not at this point. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It may be that he has a particular gift in mind or it may be that he knows that he wants to come and impart one, but until he can actually do that, he needs to come and get to know them more. But the point of emphasis is not so much on what gift, if, you know, it is when the text doesn't tell us. Focus is not so much on the gift as it is on the purpose, again, which is to strengthen or establish them. Paul had a love for this church and he desired that they be strengthened in the faith. But notice what he also says. Verse 11, I long to come to you. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged. Hmm. Mutual encouragement. Paul didn't think for a moment that he, he wanted to go to Rome just to kind of show them how this Christian thing's really done, right? His ambition was not selfish or prideful. His desire was gospel-focused. I wanna come and encourage you and strengthen you and spur you on. But as I do that, I know that you're gonna do the same for me. You're gonna encourage me. And I long for that fellowship and that relationship. He wanted to help them, but he knew that in doing so, he would also be helped. Mutual encouragement. Friends, this idea of mutual encouragement, this mutual strengthening is vital, essential, absolutely necessary for the health and life of any local church. Yes, Paul was an apostle and in some way was charged with caring for these Gentile churches, but the model set forth here is a healthy one to imitate. You're not an apostle, nor am I, in the capital A sense. But most of you, many of you, are members of this local church. And because of that, you automatically have a responsibility to every other member in this church. You've made a covenant. And we don't take our church covenant lightly. You may think we do, we don't. It's a serious thing that we consider and think about often. But as a member, if you've joined this congregation, you've made a covenant to see that other members of this church are doing well in the gospel. This is just an excerpt of the church covenant. 
It says, we engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen to this. We will walk together in Christian love. You've made that commitment here. You've made that commitment. We will walk together in Christian love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. It's like whoever wrote this church covenant read Paul. Paul's apostolic authority and calling was unique, but his heart was not. His heart, his affection, normal Christianity. His calling, different, unique. But his heart, normal Christianity. It was transformed by the same gospel as you and I. He had a desire to minister. He had this desire to invest himself, to edify and encourage. It's what he wanted to do. And it had, yeah, it was part of his calling, but it was part of his calling as a Christian first. And I just ask you, do, do you have that same kind of desire? Don't answer yes quickly. Just look at the fruit of your behavior. Look at the pattern of your prayers. Look at the conversations you have or you don't have. The involvement. Friend, you know when you think about this practice of mutual edification, it's not easy. And it doesn't always come natural. It's, it's something that often requires a sense of perseverance. I mean, Paul is, I mean, he is, he's after these Roman Christians, right? I mean, he's not just sip, sitting back, drinking his little chai latte. Maybe I'll get to Rome one day. It'd be cool if I could get there. I hear some good things are going on at the church there. No, he's begging God always to do, he wants to go that bad. It's not always easy. It takes time. It's patient. It requires patience and work. I want to just think about this from a few angles. And likely this hits everybody in the room. It's my goal. Some of us here today aren't looking to be edified. That's true. The people in this room right now, in this room, some of you are not looking to be edified. What you're doing is you're coming to worship on Sunday, checking the box, and you're going to hit the road. You're going to go to lunch, going to watch some football this afternoon, go out on the water, take a walk. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you're good. Feel good about yourself because you even came to church. But the last thing you want is people really invading your space. Friend, if that is you, just pastorally say to you, friend, you need to be edified. 
You need people in your life and you need to let your guard down and be vulnerable. You need that. God created you to live in community together with other Christians. He didn't create you to be isolated. Some of us want to be edified and don't feel edified. It's what you want. You, you want the mutual encouragement that Paul's talking about here. You say, yeah, that, I want that. But you don't feel like you're getting it. You don't feel like you're being invested in or you're being sought out or, 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 or something's going on and you just grow discouraged and even distant. You come, you're coming with just kind of a drag. You want to be here, but uh, not really. You know, in your discouragement, let me just say, your desire to be edified is good. It is right. It is biblical. It is gospel. That is the gospel doing that in you. And it may be hard. You may find it difficult. But friend, don't give up. What you may find is that the people around you in this room may need you to help them think that way. They, they may need you to edify. It's mutual, right? So if you come today, and I know nobody would say this out loud, I don't think, but oftentimes we, we think this way. I've thought this way before. You know, I come to church to be helped. That's why the church exists. It, 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 it exists to help me. And we kind of talk about the church out there as if we're not part of it. You are the church. And the body needs you as much as you need it. Maybe you could help encourage just as much as you would be encouraged. Maybe God in his sovereignty has brought you here to help foster more of a culture of edification and growth. Some of us want to do this more, but we just, uh, we don't know how. We want to help you. We want to encourage you in that. And I think one of the biggest obstacles to this is busyness. Friends, you all are just too busy. So am I. All of you, you're way too stinking busy. Slow down. You're busy at work, you're busy with family. Some of you are even too busy at church. It's true. You're busy with good things. Some of you make good Marthas. But we need more Marys. All right? Because listen, if you are not regularly pursuing other Christians, you are way too busy. You say, well, I'm just not good at that. God doesn't say if you're good at it. This is, this is normal Christianity. 
right? You'll get better at it the more you practice it. And out of a heart of good motive. Some of us are too busy. And again, some of us want to do this and we just, we don't know, we're not good at it. um, Elders would love to encourage you, get involved, stay involved. We'll point ways that you can do that and help people. Just think about these things. Paul's talking here about this idea of mutual encouragement. It's one of the reasons the church exists. It doesn't exist for you to, this is not an event. I know I say that all the time. Church is not an event you go to. We can do that at the uh, whatever Calvert Museum on Friday nights, right? They have all kinds of events. You can go to the Taste of St. Mary's County yesterday. That's an event. Church is not an event. It is a living body of people, sinners, and it's messy. But God has redeemed us and brought us together to be a family, to be a community, to be mutually edifying each other. This is Paul from a distance. Just think how much more ought this to be the case in proximity and in, especially within the same context of a local church where we verbally have committed each other, to each other by covenant. Friends, the Lord has established Redeeming Grace Baptist Church to be a thriving community of gospel citizens who love each other and seek each other's good in the Lord. Who are you seeking to do good in the Lord with? Friends, again, if Paul made this effort from a distance, there's no reason why this can't be the case in close proximity. And I'll be the first to admit that it's not perfect here. I listed all of those types of people out because I know they exist. Some find it easy to do mutual edification here and you're receiving it. Some find it very difficult and you're struggling here. As we look at the text, we're just reminded this is what the gospel does in us. Let's be about this. Second aspect of this gospel ambition, Paul's desire to see growth in the church is, he says growth that produces mutual edification, but also growth that seeks fruit. Verse 12, he talks about the mutual edification. Verse 13, I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul is saying that he had longed to come help with the gospel efforts there to see the church increase in its number, but also in its strength, to see a harvest, to see fruitfulness happen. He wanted to see both discipleship and evangelism grow so the church would grow. He wants to see conversions happen. He wants to see believers sanctified and strengthened. He wants to be part of all of it. He wants to see this harvest And again, friends, you don't need to be an apostle to have this kind of mindset. When, when you gather with other Christians on a Sunday morning or you're in a group with them throughout the week, what is it that you most desire for them? Is it, is it that you desire for them to be less obnoxious? I don't know. I mean... What is it that you desire? What is it you desire for them to somehow 
cater to your needs. And I think that one of the chief desires that we ought to have for other Christians is that they be fruitful. That they be strengthened in the gospel. Are you thinking about and praying for other Christians here to be fruitful? As you interact with other Christians, is, is it your driving desire to see them flourish in Christ? Does that come out of you in your conversations with them? Are you thinking, how can I encourage this fellow believer towards faithfulness and fruitfulness? Or are you more quick to complain about their lack of it? Sometimes when we see fruitlessness or unfaithfulness, maybe in God's sovereignty, he's given us the eyes to see that so that we would be pushed towards them to encourage and edify them. To help strengthen them, to see more fruit happen. It's one of the main things that ought to mark us as Christians in this church is our desire to see the church be fruitful. And then the last mark of love it's a mark that Paul says that's, uh, it's a love that's marked by eager obligation. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, kind of the cultured and uncultured, those who could spell Greek well and those who couldn't spell so well, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Notice what he says. It's it just... If you're not careful, you, you may come away thinking Paul's a little arrogant here or a little off the mark. He's already said, I want to reap a harvest. That seems a little forceful. Now he says, I'm under obligation. Well, when we think about obligation, we think that we're, we're responsible to do something no matter what, right? That's what we think about when we think about an obligation. It's a responsibility I have no matter how I feel. And this is what Paul's saying here. He says, I'm under obligation with the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise and to the foolish. It's just his way of saying everyone. Notice the diversity there that he's under obligation to. But to be under obligation or a debtor, if you will, was not something Paul meant begrudgingly. Again, obligation in our mind often means obligation equals have to. But there's nowhere that have to and want to are mutually exclusive, Right? Have to and want to can go right naturally together. So I'm obligated as your pastor to preach God's word this morning. And I sure want to. I'm obligated as a husband to love my wife well, but I want to. So I have to and I want to. Those go together. They're not separate. It's my responsibility. I don't go home and say, it's my responsibility to love you. I'm going to do it. It's my responsibility to preach to you today. I'm under obligation. It's what you hired me to do. I'm doing it. No, it's an it's a obligation that is eager. You see that in verse 15? I'm under obligation. I'm eager. I want to do this. I want to do this. I'm under obligation because of what God has done for me. That's what Paul's saying. My obligation is really not to you, it's really to God. I'm, I'm a debtor to grace. 
God has saved me. He has snatched me out of the fire. He has put me upon a firm foundation. He has clothed me in righteousness. He has forgiven me of all of my sin because of the finished work of Jesus. He has done all of this. And Paul says, because of all this, I'm just gonna come and check the church box. No, he says, I am under obligation. I can't think of doing anything else. Friends, one of the things that seeing yourself as a debtor to God's mercy, not that you'll ever pay him back. God doesn't want you to pay him back. He paid the, it's, Jesus paid it all. All right, he paid it all. And you're not gonna spend your life, the rest of your life kind of paying him back, paying the loan off. No, it's paid in full. Finally, once and for all. But just this sense of gratitude, just this sense of gratitude compels you towards serving him. Seeing yourself as a debtor or under obligation in a gospel way, I think it just destroys consumerism in the church. Consumerism meaning that I come to the church so that the church can meet my needs. Well, hopefully we do. But the church exists for you to belong and for you to encourage and strengthen and use your gifts because you're under obligation, eagerly. As Christians, are we obligated to serve others? Yes. Do you want to serve others? Yes. The problem is, is when we can't answer yes to both of those questions. Am I under obligation? Yes. Do I want to? Not so much. There's where the breakdown is. And friends, the problem then is not with others or your situation. It's within your own heart. Because that's how God made you and this is God's intent in saving you. Paul concludes this section of verse 15. He says, so... I've told you now why I want to come. I'm, I'm eager to come preach the gospel. That sounds odd, doesn't it? He wants to come to preach the gospel to Christians. So I'm eager to come preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. We can preach the gospel to you. He understands that the gospel not only saves people, but it sustains us. You never graduate from the gospel. It's what fuels your motives. It's what informs your love and affection. It's what, it's what makes you who you are. His ministry was a purely gospel-driven ministry, and he knew that there were those in Rome who needed the gospel in order to come to Christ, and he knew that there were those in Rome who needed to grow in Christ, and he couldn't wait to get there. He just couldn't wait. And friend, that in a very real sense ought to be the attitude of every one of us. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we too should be thankful. We too should be prayerful. We too should most certainly de to desire to see the church established, strengthened, mutual edification happening. We should desire these things. And because of the gospel, we should conclude that there's nowhere else that we would want to be than right in the middle of God's plan. God's plan. 
God's path, right in the middle of God's people. Friends, are you eager to see this kind of gospel ministry flourish in your life and in the life of this church? Is that your eager desire? Is that your gospel-driven motivation and obligation? Has the gospel changed your heart like this? Where you're growing in your affection for others? Well, if so, then give yourself to it. Give yourself to it for God's glory and for the good of your family. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this instruction in the introduction of a letter. Father, we thank you that you inspired Paul to reveal his heart to show us what it looks like for the gospel to change us. To show us what it looks like for us to, to be different than the world. Lord, that, that, that not only have you commanded us to love others, you've given us an examples of what that looks like, ultimately in Christ, most perfectly so. Gave himself so sacrificially, denying himself laying aside his own rights and desires even in order to serve. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What a demonstration of love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, even in others, Lord, even in the life of Paul, a, a, a person who previously gave his approval to killing Christians, now is spending the rest of his life loving them. This is what the gospel does. God, would you do that here? Would you do that in my heart? Would you do it in the hearts of your people right here in this room? Would you increase our capacity to love one another and to do that well? pursue others in the ways that we need to be pursued, in the way that we long to be pursued. And Father, even if there are those of us in this room who don't understand or don't even desire to be pursued, that you would open that up, that you would break down those barriers. God, would you do that work of grace, that we would be a people of love to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.